Hausflair and this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk getting to know the person behind the company. For this 23rd episode I talked to Hampus Jakobsen, co-founder of Brisk.io and the Astonishing Tribe and now partner at Blue Yard. Hampus started with a group of friends in a dorm room and quickly embarked on an epic journey, sailing where the wind would blow. He made user interfaces for the big phone manufacturers, sold his company to Blackberry for 150 million, worked there in mergers and acquisitions, started angel investing, launched a new software startup to get more experience at raising money and is now at the other side of the table, investing in tech startups that are about to change the world. We theorize about how the world works, about the, do, the two different stages of a startup, the state of venture capital, work-life balance, and why you should not build someone else's company. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, Hampus. It's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Great to be here. You are uh, currently uh, a VC at, at Blue Yard, but formerly um, you were a founder at first, I think, The Astonishing Tribe and then at Brisk.io. Um, normally I ask people to introduce the company uh, where they are, but maybe you can uh, introduce the three of them very quickly to kind of give us an overview of, of, of your journey. Of course. No, so like when I was young um, in university, I started a company with five of my friends, which we literally stumbled into. Um, is there were six friends. Uh, I was building an arts company. I was working at an arts company in London as an internship. I got back. Uh, one of my friends then, with the inspiration we got from there, met somebody, and we were able to build a big arts installation. And uh, we were like, wow, that's great. That's, we probably have to start a company to invoice that. Uh, another two friends were building, were consulting, doing consultancy, doing image recognition and video uh, stuff. They wanted to start a company around that. Another friend was working with uh, special effects for movies. And we were all like those friends. We just said, hey, let's just like start this company together, even though we're doing three completely different things. We kind of all are. Yes, sorry. Yeah, what was the company exactly about? It was about art. It's some, some no, no, so it's like not completely crazy. Think about this like dorm room uh, stuff. Like this is completely random stuff. Like bunch. Everything was about essentially experiences. Like you know, video compression technology, arts, um, special effects for movies. But like everything in the kitchen sink. We started this as a hobby project uh, when the university. And then what happened is that we had a lot of fun. It was really great. And, and, and I mean, invoice customers uh, spent less time at the university than probably we should sometimes. And then what happened is that a friend of us pinged us and said, oh, I'm working at Sony and Sony and Ericsson just merged. We're building a mobile phone. And you had worked, we had actually worked quite a long time in computer arts. That's why mm -hmm. we did the different activities. So he said, oh, can you help us build like uh, the first color screen mobile phone and get the software for that? And we just said, no way, because we had worked at a gaming startup before, mobile gaming startup, and we just felt mobile phones, 2001, that's never going to come anywhere. Like, mobile phones were getting smaller and smaller, and the tech screens and butt-hugging. So this guy was like, hey, save my ass. So we said, okay, sure, we'll help you out. And we started talking to them, and came in the first meeting, and we had built a prototype for them. And they came in, they looked at what we did, and they said, wow, how much is this? Can we license it? We had no idea what that meant. So we said, uh, yep, uh, it's... It's like 40K euros. And yeah. they were like, yeah, uh, per, per, per mobile phone model, question mark. And we just 
what? Yes. Yes, exactly. So that was like the company turned from this like dorm room craziness to kind of very quickly focused and pivot on one thing, which is mobile user, user interfaces and the software to empower that. So essentially everything you see on your phone, which is like you know, the menu system, all the pop-ups, the notifications, everything, the operating system, essentially the top layer of that. So what we did is that we licensed this software to the Motorola, Samsung, Sony Ericsson, Nokia, all of those kind of players. And they paid us crazy money, like 5 million euros per year, kind of. But it took forever to sell these companies. We ended up designing the uh, user interface for Android, for lots of like Orange projects, Vodafone, Disney, lots of different things. And then we said, and we didn't raise money because, hey, this like remember, this is like the dorm room crazy company that does everything. So uh, at 2010, we were 180 people in Sweden, Korea, the US, and then some people in Taiwan and Japan. And then BlackBerry came from nowhere and said, hey, we would like to acquire you. And BlackBerry was then 2010. We might not remember it now, but they were the leading smartphone manufacturer in the world. We've never met with them, but they were the, essentially the only ones, except Apple had started thinking with it, who did really impressive work smartphones. Got acquired by them. Uh, 180 million, 150 million, sorry, US. Uh, we didn't have venture capital, so it was completely crazy. Um, and then I worked two years from BlackBerry doing M&A, which is, means like acquired companies, which was very, very interesting. It's, on the other side of the table, suddenly I get to see all these companies going like, oh, they're presenting themselves really strangely, or they don't understand corporates. Why are they presenting? Why are they doing this and that? So uh, after two years there, I decided to start another company, so I started Brisk, and for multiple reasons. I had angel invested quite a lot, and I felt quite painfully that I didn't know the venture world. I didn't understand how to raise money because I'd never done that. And the other thing is that I was so interested in figuring out um, like how to help people to do like data-driven decision-making because I just had seen like how corporates are pretty bad at working with data to decide stuff. So me and one of the founders of TAT, we started this company, um, raised $2 million and started building, after a couple of micro pivots around, started building this sales tool that took in data from the CRM, the calendar, the emails, every, all the small data around the salesperson and did recommendation to them to sell either like, hey, you forgot calling Janet at AT&T. It's an open opportunity to serum. Uh, and then either the salesperson said, hey, okay, I'll call Janet. Or the salesperson said, oh, Janet, like, you know, AT&T, that's a lost opportunity. And either they did a, you know, push the deal forward or they updated the serum data. So essentially, it felt like a great idea. What was not a great idea was the complexity of onboarding on top of another CRM system like Salesforce. So what ended up happening is even though we signed really nice customers, LinkedIn, Intercom, Hootsuite, Evernote, lots of nice American big companies who would really love the product. The onboarding was very, very complicated. So we ended up selling the company for peanuts and legal fees um, and handed out the money to investors. And then I started an angel group. I started a startup community. I started an accelerator. And after that, I joined uh, Blue Road, which is a venture fund that invests in infrastructure around a couple of different theses, but I would generally say it's about a lot of things are trapped in silos right now. And mm -hmm. data is trapped in silos. Work is trapped in a model of like you have to have certain skills. Uh, and, and the way, like for example, electricity or anything is trapped in like the old way of doing it. And Bureau essentially is about lowering these hedges so that uh, like tools for new labor, for example, or new labor economy or... Um, tools for liberating data out of the internet or um, 
tools for easing communication um, because and, and not like web conferencing for for startups but essentially thinking about stuff like internet neutrality or um, the Chinese firewall or uh, just data being tracked in strange places like big farm or something where that actually not not actually helping society so that's where I work today and I really really enjoy it yeah that's a that's a, a serious 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 journey and it seems that you it's it's a journey that you didn't really think through from the start. It's sort of oh, it's completely, happened, planned. Right? completely completely planned. No, I was kidding. No, I I don't actually I, I don't believe I mean I believe in planning, but I don't believe in executing the plan you planned. So I think that everybody should sit back, journal, plan their week, have goals for the year, all of that. But I think that if we believe that we're gonna follow the plan, we can only do things that are obvious. Like Christopher Columbus could never have found Americas if he was going after finding America. Um, I think he can only, the reason Christopher Columbus found America was that he wanted to get a shorter path to, the, uh, to India. To, uh, and I think what he did was he, he pitched the idea to the Portuguese um, royalty saying, hey, you see all these traders going around Africa. And you've seen all these improvements, like you're in a gradual improvements, 5% year by year, how they're getting slightly faster, bigger ships, yada, yada, improving yield. But mm-hmm. we have this great idea, which we just go west, which is going to be much, much faster. It's a much higher risk, but it's going to go faster. And we found this actually thing that another guy found a couple years earlier, that this this wind. So we think it's going to work. And we're getting to India. And this is a high bit, high bet. Like if it works, it's going to be like 10x better, 100x better. And I think that, you know, if he would have said we're going to find America, he would have never found it. So I think the thing is, like, if people plan their life and meticulously implement that plan, they're not going to get there. I think people, but people who be, act like a, uh, like a sailboat on the sea that goes where the wind blows, they're not going to get anywhere either. So what I really believe in is, like, creating plans and thinking stuff through and essentially creating, like, an operative system for life, thinking, like, what do I want to achieve? How do I want to achieve it? Why do I want to achieve it? So that when suddenly an opportunity comes knocking, you can think about if this is in the big direction I want to go. And yeah. if it is, then let's lean in. If it's not in the big direction I go, then just say no. Um, so like if somebody say, hey, do you want to do an internship at like The Economist? If you want to go into that kind of world, yes. If you hate the idea, then just say no. And no angst. The day after, you did what, like, you know, what your quote-unquote plan told you. But if you had a plan that said, I want to work at The Economist, I would tell you, most of the time, you're going to be very sad. Yeah. So do you, how, how do I need to imagine that? Do you have some kind of uh, mission in mind or just based on, on some sort of intuition feeling? Or? I think that, I mean, I, I, the way I implemented it, I, I very much create, like, I start by creating like a plan, exactly what I want to do. Like, you know, oh, I want to do this, that, this, that, this, that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started like try to zoom out of that and ask myself, what does that mean? Like, you know, uh, why would I want to do that? And some of these things, I realized that the goal is like, I want to learn or I want to be more, be more creative or create more meaningful connections or personal health uh, or something like that. And then I look at that goal and realize that those are actually the goals. And then I try to make those concrete. So instead I have like three or four or five big goals, like personal health or connections or something. And then under those, I have like more like examples of ways to reach that for myself. Mm-hmm. So that when I when I sort of when something 
like, and of course, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, I try to pursue the things that are under the big headline because otherwise I can't just sit there and go, oh, health, what to do with health? Like one of the things is like, you know, I try to run uh, 20K every Sunday morning, but, you know, sometimes I fall off the horse and I don't. So like not literally fall off the horse, but sometimes I don't run 20K in the mornings. So my goal is to make sure I average 10K per week all year. And that goal is a very concrete goal. And the sub goal to that is run 20K on Sundays. So the top, but the top goal is health, which means that my sub, my lowest, my goal closest to now, most concrete, is run 20k on Sundays. I fail that every second week, and then I go up and look at run, run average 10k per week. So I succeed with that goal, but then I make sure to like try to run 10k as well. So I like I average slightly more, so I can fail more often. And then I look at the big goal, which is health, which is uh, uh, done that way. But if I would suddenly feel that running 20k would be very unhealthy for me, like for some reason, then maybe I should change the more concrete goal, like the zoomed in goal. So I do this for a lot of different things. And I think that's so good. And like another goal is like, you know, meet new internet, internet interesting people. And I have like three or four methods of doing that. And all of those methods are interchangeable and they change over the weeks and months and quarters of the year. But the big goal I have is I really enjoy meeting interesting people with interesting ideas. And, you know, how I solve that is depends on the occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it sounds like you've you've been doing a, a a lot of different things. Like on this on this path, uh, you you start off with a hobby project that becomes a, a huge startup, let's say, or a huge scale up. Uh, then go into a corporate job, then end up in a new startup that remains small, and and now a VC fund. Uh, do you see yourself going back to running a startup after this, or? No, I don't think I'm going to start a startup ever again, actually. And the reason is because I found that, um, um, like, my goal now, like, my, my, if you look at my, like, top, top, top line goal, my, like, the, the big goal I have is really to get to know myself, accept who I am, and be comfortable with who I am. And the thing is, when I run a startup, I, I really work against that goal. Because I, I am a maximizer, optimizer, um, which means that when I run a startup, I... I I'm not trying to be the best of myself. I'm trying to be the best company. So I start doing stuff which is super unhealthy for me. And also not, on, not only unhealthy, but they're also not in line with the goal of getting to know myself and accept myself. Um, they're in line with creating company. Whereas being a, 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 a VC uh, and an investor, I'm an angel investor invested in some like 90 plus companies. The good thing about that, that really, really resonates with what I like the things I want to learn. I like, I enjoy meeting ambitious, interesting people. That's great if you're a master. I enjoy learning new subjects constantly. That's great if you're a master. I enjoy massive variation, which is great. Like, I mean, this, like this evening, I have a quantum computing company I'm talking to. Three days ago, I dived into fusion technology. Um, I'm doing due diligence on a developer platform. Uh, I think it's just superb because my brain just has to jump from all these different subjects all the time. And I pair this up with like, running, reading cycles of fiction, uh, cooking quite a lot, which is like in the other end of the spectrum. And if I was running a startup, I wouldn't cook, I wouldn't run, I wouldn't um, like read. I would read stuff that is in line with my company. I would run to, to sleep well. I would, like, I, I would really be optimizing for one thing. And I do think that people who run startups, sadly, well, sadly, maybe not, but I think that one has to really focus on one thing to really succeed with doing something really new if you're trying to like you know build an exponentially scaling company so therefore i, I just found that i end up be, i end up learning less 
I end up uh, being less creative. I end up like living unhealthily. And those are like my goals. Like I love learning and learning is not what a startup is about. In the beginning, yeah. it's about that. <laughs> but after well, a while, it's it depends about how you look at learning, I guess. If you, uh, I used to be a consultant uh, previously. I had a lot of different projects, but I always felt like I was only touching the surface. Well, yeah, yeah. now that I run a company, I really learn things deeply and it really matters. So it's, a, it's another type of learning, I think. The thing is, I think that I think I learned extremely much. Like I learned so much from both of my startups. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever learned that much about so many things. Because as you grow, you force yourself to having to figure stuff out. Like it, there's just like, how do you meet people? Or like, how do you like do internet marketing or whatever? Like you do so many things that you actually really have to figure out. The thing I've found more lately is I felt that since I've done two startup journeys and since I've had angel invested in like 90 plus, since I like with the funds and, and angel communities invest in a lot more, the thing is after a while I feel that if I look around me, there's somebody who is 10 times better at hardware than I am. There's somebody who's 10 times better at internet marketing. Somebody's 10 times better at leading people. And I feel that I'm starting to feel more and more that if I start a new company, I would only focus on essentially three things. I would focus on setting the vision, recruiting the greatest people, and making sure that we have great com uh, culture and communication internally. Because those are the things that I feel that those are the things that I kind of could master. But everything else, I just feel like, yeah, there's somebody that's just so much better than I am. And honestly, on those three parts, there are probably people that are much better than I am as well. So very quickly, I would just feel, ah, okay, let's, let's like, you know, take a step back. And that's why I enjoy as an angel investor or as a VC, I get to do those things. I get to work with the company on those three things, fundraising, uh, and communication and culture. And like, it's just such a, like for me, I, 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 I am so happy that all these people I work with, they put up with me. Um, cause I, I am a horrible person to work with. I am, I, I mean, I really drive people crazy. Do you? Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, I mean I, I'm I'm extremely intense. Uh, I really think people should things should just go so much faster. Yeah. And um, I just like when somebody says we can't do this. Um, like I mean, I, I my, one of my favorite jokes is I have a couple of favorite jokes, but one of my favorite jokes, which is a proper uh, like you know uh, a joke I can say, which is going to be recorded, is um, like a man comes into a doctor and says. Uh, doctor, like when I hold my hand like this, it hurts. And the doctor, she says, well, don't do that then. And the thing is, that's kind of how I view it. Like sometimes when I'm an entrepreneur, it's like, ah, oh, this is really painful, blah, blah, blah. Then I go, like, but just don't do it then. <laughs> and they go, what do you mean? It's like, but if you think it's painful building a company, I can tell you it's going to get worse. Like I see, I mean, I haven't worked with so many companies. The thing is, I think there are two different stages of a startup. There's the pre-product market fit which is the phase when you wake up 2 a.m. in the morning and ask yourself why you're doing this thing. And you, you have to like tell your spouse, tell your like whatever best friends that it's a great idea. And not at 2 a.m. in the morning, hopefully, but you're sitting there like, I'm just lying to them. And you have to go to work at 8 a.m. in the morning and tell your investors and employees and everyone else like you're killing it and this is a great idea. And you, you really don't know why you're doing it. And then, and not because of fatigue, but because it's just confusion. Like one customer is saying yes, another is saying no. One developer is happy, another is unhappy. It's just confusion. And then suddenly, you get product market fit. And with product market fit, you move from the phase of waking up to a.m. in the morning to just feeling completely insufficient. 
like customers are asking for the product faster than you can build it. Developers like asking to hire more developers faster than you can hire developers. And just things are just breaking everywhere. And you just feel, why am I the person running this thing? And the thing is, both of those phases are, I love them. If the first phase is essentially, it's like, it's an artist phase. And the second phase is like, you know, it's a, like, it's an extremely special, strange kind of uh, cultural and mental expansion and growth mentality space. But most invest in most angel, I'm sorry, most startups that I work with, they hate the first phase and they hate the second phase. But some people I work with, they really thrive and they create extraordinary companies. And the thing is, most people, I think what most people think, one, one thing that I think is so strange though, is most people believe um, that the better, the more valued company somebody runs, uh, the smarter they are. Like people look at like, you know, Larry Page or like, you know, Elon Musk or, or I don't know, uh, Jeff Bezos. And they say, oh, Jeff Bezos must be the smartest person in the world. Or Larry Page must be the smartest person in the world. No, not at all. Jeff Bezos and, and Larry Page and Elon Musk, they're naturally smart because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten there. They have grit, they have smarts, they have you know, social skills, whatever it's needed. Maybe not social skills for all of them. But anyways, um, but they're not linearly smarter uh, with their evaluation. And I think that that's what I find so many people misunderstanding. I know co companies that have created like, you know, a $10 million turnover company where they're some of the smartest people I know. It's just that they were, quote unquote, unlucky to get a local maximum of an idea. Or someone else might be a so, so smart, kind of, like smarter than average, and they're like more greedy than ambitious than average, but they happen to land on an amazing idea, uh, completely randomly. And I think that's what I, like I think that what I enjoy is not like how smart people are, but just seeing people grow and helping them grow. Yeah. And that's what I like. Is it growing within these two phases or growing from the one phase to the other? I think that for me, it's growth, growth is like, you know, mental growth. And I think that I know, I know people that are just extraordinary in the first phase. And then suddenly they, they just like in the, as they get into the second phase, they just don't like it anymore. And either they can do kind of a quote unquote lateral move and, um, and like become like the chief innovation officer or marketing person or whatever. Um, or they can just step out and start another company. Um, and I think that both of those are fine. I think the ones that I think fail, like personally fail, are the ones that stay as the CEO, stay as the VP engineering, stay as the VP marketing or whatever. And they just, they're not good at it. And they become a bottleneck of the company and they hate it. But they can't admit that they hate it because of status. Um, so I think that, that that's the complicated thing is how do, you, how do you understand that maybe you are not, like you're not at your best self right now. Yeah. And I think that's why like I love growth as in, I mean, I meet people who are growing through the first phase and when they get to the second phase, they should do something new. I meet people who are struggling in the first phase a lot and then they get to the second phase and they just flourish. And then I meet people who, you know, go through different phases and they just grow and grow and grow and grow. And I like all three. Like yeah. I, I really try to just help people be the best them, at themselves. And I many people I meet who I just recommend them to like, you know, step off the boat. Yeah. It's just like, you're going to hurt yourself. Don't do this. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. you, you, you mentioned that you went um, into the VC world because you wanted to learn about, uh, about raising money, being at the other side of the table. What is it that, that you've learned? Can you give us an example of something you've learned since you're at Blue Yard? 
Um, I think that, the, yeah, I mean, the learnings originally came when I started work. It's like, you know, since I never had raised money, I really wanted to raise money. So I kind of like, you know, yeah. understood how that game right. started. But I think that what I, what I think I've learned is, at Blue Artist particularly, I would say that, you know, money is seasonal. Uh, and right now we're in, we're in like a post-capital season. There are just like extraordinary amounts of capital that want to invest in startups, like beyond what anybody can believe. Well, I mean, look at like SoftBank, Visions Fund. Like when you see one of those funds, you realize, okay, there's a lot of capital out there. The thing is, that means that there's a new type of founder that's really needed. And there used to be, like if you look 10 years ago, the best founders were the people who were able to create a product market fit and sell, you know, start crafting the product, selling it, and recruiting the first people. And then what happened like 10, 15 years ago is that you hired an external CEO to help scale the company. That's completely changed because now there's just so much capital for it, first of all. And also people's skills have ramped up uh, because, like, because of the internet. Like people can you know, learn so much faster. Um, so that means that the new kind of startup founder are much more people that can do the three things I said. Like they can, they're great at raising money, they're great at recruiting the best people and making sure they're focused on the right things and creating culture of communication. And the thing about that is that that is just such a strange thing because that skill is not taught anywhere. Um, and I used to have a belief where the people I wanted to invest in were people who could craft product and get in the hands of the early adopters. Now, I'm much more keen on invest, like investing in people who can assemble an amazing team uh, who have the you know, shared aligned great vision. That's just such, so much more interesting. And I think it's because there's so much capital out there. So you can, you know, create like whatever, like a fusion company, or you can create like, you know, something completely new, which I think just 10 years ago, there just was not enough capital. And of course, like these people can't like, you know, they have to know what they're doing. Uh, it's not that just like you and I can't wake up tomorrow and say, oh, let's do a fusion reactor because we are clueless So on, on that. So we're not going to do it. But I think that it used to be that it was all about the first phase. And I think right now, it's all about leadership. So I think that, and the headache of that is that leadership is not something that is uh, institutionalized. It's like, it's really hard to learn how to become a leader. Um, sadly, most people learn how to become a, some people take you know, leadership training at school, and that's usually really dysfunctional. Yeah. Or they learn by, you know, the hard way, by, you know, leading people and, and hurting from it. And I think both are suboptimal. I think the ideal version is like, that's why I think people should start a startup or join a startup. Because if you join a startup when you're young, you get to see something scale and grow, and you get to understand how it is to lead super intelligent, ambitious people in something that moves really, really fast. So then you have to figure out anything from like remote work, culture, creating belonging, understanding OKRs, all of those things, which are applicable whatever you do. Like you can go and work for the UN, you can go work for like a library, you can go work for another startup or start a startup, because these skills are applicable everywhere. Yeah. Do you think that that like, I mean, there's the current climate where your uh, second phase uh, experts are better at, uh, but what if the current climate like reverses and uh, uh, yeah, when yeah, you I have mean, made choice in terms no, of no, I mean, I think I think it's going to go back and forth. I think that I think that there are both macroeconomical reasons why startups are are uh, like super interesting for economic reasons. I mean, but then then they're also um, so they're macroeconomical and they're cultural reasons, but then they're also the, the third one is that people have understood that startups might be a good way of, like startups exist as an asset class, which, you know, 20 years ago didn't exist. 
there's plenty of proof that it's like economically a really interesting idea to be an investor, like an LP in a fund, I mean. The other thing is I think that um, there's just right now flush cash because uh, of like what the interest rates are. But then I think that the mid one is the one I find very interesting, which is I think we've figured out that the startup way, certain problems are much, much better at being solved in the startup way than being solved by big corporates or governments or research institutions. Whereas I think that 20 years ago, if somebody would have told me, oh, there's two guys in a shed, and I mean guys as gender neutral, there's a guy and a gal in a shed, that's going to be the future fusion reactor. I would have said, oh, why are they not at Oxford, Harvard, Stanford, da, da, da. And I think now I realize, because the people at Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, whatever, they're going to sit there for a long while and think about it. And they're very needed in the system. But it's the entrepreneurs who goes there, like on a limb and takes the risk to try it. Those are the people that bring things forward. And, and, and you know, most of them fail, but some of them will, will, will solve it. And I think that methodology is much more, it's much more like running evolution faster. And I think we really need that as a species. And I'm not saying about like upgrading mines and uploading them to the clouds or anything. I just think that if we look at the way the environment looks right now, I mean, like the, you know, the, the uh, actual environment, not the sociological environment, but like the carbon dioxide problems and, and, the, and how far we are from the Paris Agreement. If we believe that government's going to solve that, we're, like it's never going to happen. Uh, we need like so many startups that look at the sustainable development goals, anything from women rights, inequality, hunger, education, uh, climate, and attack those aggressively uh, ambitiously and relentlessly and try. And nine out of 10, it's not going to work. The 10th, boom. Wow. We figured out a way to capture carbon and store it in some inter interesting way. Wow. And yes, did we need some great researchers? Yes. Yes. Did we need ambitious young people? Yes. Did we need some corporates that have like, you know, refined that material? Yes. But will the corporates, the government or the research institutions actually take the leap and take the risk? No, they won't. And I think that that's why I think that most entrepreneurs think that Elon Musk is a hero, because what he did is like he did what everybody kind of in the world thought was impossible. But technically, I think if you would ask the professionals, I think there were many professionals who were saying, the experts, that that's very possible. Like building electrical vehicles is very possible. Uh, or like building rockets that are much better is very possible. It's just somebody has to take a risk. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing which I think that entrepreneurs are for. It's taking those bets, wasting the money from LPs uh, and investors to try and maybe uh, creating uh, like a better planet. But then there are certain kind of companies that are not compliant with VCs that if you would scale that idea, you would destroy the idea. And certain of those ideas are like they shouldn't look for VCs and VCs shouldn't look for them. So it, it, like there are things that if you do it better, it's going to be unsustainable. Anything from like, you know, the FMCG market, like the fast moving consumer goods market, where if your whole business model is selling clothes quickly and quicker and quicker and quicker and getting people to dispose of their clothes by new ones, then that's a very bad model for the globe. So it's much better figuring out like a circular economy, which is of course a bad model for the investors, but it's a great model for the world. So then there are other kinds of funds that like zebra funds that invest in zebras instead of, of scale companies. Uh, and I think that's super interesting. Yeah. And I think all these actors, I think, should really think about what their role is in a bigger picture. Like, I think that if, if governments should much more think about how they distribute luck, uh, that's 
that's what governments could be really good at. They should just look at, okay, luck is really like unfairly distributed or unevenly distributed. Like some people are born very wealthy, some people uh, are healthy and have no problems. A random person got sick, a random person was born into a horrible situation or anything else. Governments should make sure that luck does not happen like that. Like we should distribute luck. That's what government could do. They, that's what they should focus on. And I think they can, uh, but they don't. They try to do all kinds of things that governments are really bad at. Yeah, I understand. So you're basically saying that the model uh, for startups, at least VC-funded startups, is uh, to take a lot of money, experiment, and try to make that huge leap. Um, because And that, that, that kind of serves a role in the economy. Absolutely. So absolutely, it does. I mean, and I think that some of them, of course, creates completely, you know, societally meaningless products. Um, but at the same time, I think that anybody, you could look at, I mean, the problem is like we have neolithic brains that love sugar and attention and status and things and, and a pretty bad self-confidence. And we have very medieval, medieval institutions of how we try, try to run the globe. And on top of that, then we have an, a hyper-capitalist, digitalist, or a digital economy that moves very, very fast. And those three things can create really nasty havocs. And I think that, I think like Facebook, Instagram, whatever, they're really, really, really bad for people. But they've also created amazing things. I mean, if it wouldn't have been for Facebook, like a lot of the democracies that have been created and, and a lot of the new ways of learning and connecting with people wouldn't have been there. But I... I think that some of these things are really bad as well. And I think that we're going to iron those out. I hope we're going to iron those out to come in 10 years. And I think that whenever we do these leaps, for 10 years, we do something really stupid. I think when we get brain-machine interfaces online and they work, I think we're going to have 10 very, very horrible years. Yeah. Um, but then we might find something amazing. As a VC now, um, uh, how how does it differ what keeps you up at night lately now like what is it that you are personally uh busy with like what do you worry about i mean I, the thing is i'm not a person that that worries worries um i do i do worry though but i think that i think as a vc i think there, there are a couple of different things i think one is I, I spend my time a lot about thinking about how the world will change and what is possible now that can't be possible otherwise. Like anything from, you know, will this thing happen now? And there are, there are so many levels of that. There are, there are things that we now can... There, there, there are, I would say there are three levels of what you can change. So the level one is that we can move around uh, bits in different ways. Like we've seen that, like take Instagram. You can move around a picture super easily. And what industries haven't we been moving around bits in that we should move around bits in? Then we have the second level, which move around atoms, which is like, ah, okay, could you do, do like, you know, an Uber or self-driving cars or something where it's like, we're actually thinking about moving objects around. Um, and what, what industries can we think about where we can empower that even better? And then the third level is moving culture around. So can we shift and like get people to view each other in a better light or transfer wealth or remove inequality and all those three levels is that every minute every year um we can change like new possibilities appear like suddenly like we can do these things better we can uh, like attack new problems and I, I think a lot of things i think about is when people say oh we can do this or this happens in the world anything from like 
all the three levels, atoms, as our bits, atoms, and culture, is it, it opens up my eyes and says, oh, interesting. Hmm, I wonder if you can apply that model in this place, or I wonder if that idea actually works now, or if it's going to take another five years, or I wonder what's the bottleneck of making sure that actually works. So I think a lot about that, and I think it's, I really love that. And but, but what it keeps a lot of investors awake at night is I think that they found, which is the, the boring part of I think how a lot of investors work, is you find something really amazing and you want to invest in it, and you realize that other people realize it's amazing. So you need to move very, very fast, and you need to create like um, an internal kind of uh, conviction that this is a great idea. And that's the thing where you need to rush and stress and have like calls till 2 a.m. in the morning which nobody likes and because it, it hurts the other part because then when you have call two in the morning, your frontal lobe starts shutting off when you behave like a stupid teenager or a kid uh, or an animal. So I think it's, it's uh, but at the same time, we all, you know, sometimes you need to sprint. Yeah. Do you mostly focus on this beginning part of the investment process and, uh, or do you? I mean, I do, I, I do all parts. I do all parts. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do all parts. I mean, I, I I do anything from like meeting companies randomly to kind of do due diligence to helping out deciding to invest to doing deep diving in, in areas. So yeah, yeah. And but there, there's less, uh, less uh, stuff keeping you up at night lately. There, there, done or yeah, absolutely. I think they, uh, there, there's normal things that keep me up at night. I think what keeps all humans up at night. I, mm-hmm. just, like, I, I, have, I have three kids. I have other interests. Blah blah. blah. Yeah. So like you know. Random stuff happens would make me like wake up in the night. Yeah, you, you mentioned that you would uh, you would have very unhealthy habits as a as a startup founder, and that it ch- changed as a VC. How can we imagine the difference? Um, I think that one of the things which is very strange about a VC is that if you try to optimize, I mean. The strange thing about VC is that if I would spend all my time doing one thing, helping one company, I would probably do the wrong thing. Once in a blue moon, uh, you invest in a company that you realize you should probably put all your eggs in that basket. But I would say that probably doesn't happen. So that means that if I meet an amazing company and I get to invest in them, and I now can help them out to scale, if I now would start spending four, four days a week helping them scale, the fund is going to be horribly bad because it's going to be really high risk that this company, if it doesn't work, the fund is going to fail. So that means that in, in the beginning, I might help them to correct and figure out the course and recruit and help them with strategy. But very early on, I have to start looking for new companies and building new theses. And what I like about that is that it means that I mean, the way to optimize essentially is to be balanced. And I think the other thing I've learned is that I think that with the years, I think that I've gone from, this sounds really, really stupid and cliche, but I would say like, I've gone from working hard to working smart. And I know when I did my first company, I just like put in the hours. I could easily like work 80 hours a week and thought that was a great idea. Now I know that this is extremely stupid to work 80 hours and nobody should brag about working 80 hours. People should say, I'm working 80 hours and I'm trying to quit, help me. Because when you're working 80 hours, you're being super stupid usually. Um, You don't know what you're doing. You're working like a machine. And I think that it's super important to figure out those balances. And the more, the more you're a startup, the more it actually sometimes makes sense to work 80 hours because there's just so many things to do. So you just rush into task, you know exactly what to do, and you just try to do it as fast as possible and as good quality as possible. The thing with investments is investment is something 
where there are a couple of sprints here and there, but a lot of it is like there's, there's a marathon, first of all, like you have to keep doing it year after year. But the other thing is it's quite intellectual. So like you have to really think about what you believe in this thing. And you have to be very good at reading people and figuring out if these people are bullshitting or if these people are great leaders. So if I'm tired and irritated, I'm either going to do no investments or bad investments. So I have to kind of stay very balanced. I have to think a lot about what I believe about the world, which I think is extremely interesting. But it's also, of course, hard work in another sense. Yeah. What does it mean exactly for you, uh, staying balanced? Like, how do you do that? Is that mostly by, by running on Sunday or are there other ways? No, I think that, I think there are just, there are many, many ways I, I try to do this. I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. Um, so I'm, I'm, that's the reason I'm, I, so I, you don't need to try it something. It, it happens naturally, right? So the reason I tried it is because I'm bad at it. So what I do is like, I have a lot of like systems. So I look at my calendar and try to make sure that my calendar has uh, like a balanced calendar, that I have enough information retrieval, that I have enough like thinking, that I have enough documentation, that I have enough, enough kind of decision making, that I have enough collaboration. And I try to make sure that if I have a week, which is just about grinding, I know that that's going to be maybe a great week, but the week after is going to be pretty bad because I'm going to start becoming stupid pretty quickly. So a method I usually use uh, is I color my meetings. I just like have different colors and I can just look at my calendar and go, oh, my calendar is almost completely blue yellow. Huh. I have no purple. I have like no green. That's pretty stupid. And then I start to like in the future next week, I try to like cancel meetings if I can and move them around and do like that. But then I like in the following week, I just try to course correct to make sure that they're more even. And I don't have like a perfect methodology of like 20% of this and 50% of that. It's more like a hunch looking at, huh. This is not going to be. This is not going to be good. And some of those things are, you know, running, meditation, mindfulness, reading, blah blah blah. But some of them are just, you know, meeting new people or uh, documenting what I believe, writing blog posts. I have a, I have a very active and healthy relationship to my blog. I, I think about something and I write a blog post to try to think it through. And some of the blog, I, almost all of the blog posts I've written are either for myself or they're for a founder where I've talked about the subject for a long time. And instead of just like saying half thought through things, I force myself to write something so I actually have to think it through. And when I, when I give them that or give myself that, I just found that it, it was so good for me. Like I really thought things through much better and it, and it enriches me for a long time. Yeah. Like slowly wrapping up and, and further on thinking things through and, 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 and thinking about the world um, what are some of the latest good books you've read and why did you choose to read them? So I have two kinds of books I read. Well, I, I, there are only two kinds of books, I guess, people read. But I, I, fiction, fiction and, uh, and uh, textbooks. Um, and I read a lot of fiction books. I read a lot. I really enjoy reading fiction. I think it's an amazing way of seeing the world through other people's eyes. Um, and I think it's an amazing way of thinking about things I've never thought about. But of course, I think textbooks are really great because textbooks also distill uh, that viewpoint in a much more solidified version because it's a framework to stand upon. So on fiction, I read massive amounts of really great fiction. I mean, I think last year I had 40, 45 fiction books that I think that 10 of them were amazing. And in, but in textbooks, I think they're completely different. And one book I think, there are a couple of books I think that a lot of people should be reading. Um, which are about like scaling life and becoming a better person. So I think 
Um, Finite and Infinite Games is an extraordinary book about how life works. I think that The, uh, the Obstacle is the Way is an amazing book about how to attack problems and how to you know, not, not be too, super sad about stuff. I really like The Righteous Mind, which is uh, essentially why I like how to understand people with very different morals than you. Um, I really like, surprisingly, I liked um, Atomic Habits, which I thought would be a pretty horrible book, but I really liked it, actually. Um, so I think that's, that's very, I mean, it's very different books, of course. Uh, but I think that those are, like, on the textbook side, I, I really felt that they, I learned something from all those books. And I think that on the, on the fiction side, I think that, I, first of all, I, I, really, I really like, like a lot of different fiction. Um, but I think there are certain books that teach us things we've never like, seen or thought. And I think that I really, really love, for example, Little Life. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs should read Little Life because it's really a book about ambition and how ambition really hurts, um, how complicated it is to be very ambitious. And I think that, and then I think that there are in, interesting like science fiction books that are, treat very interesting technical possibilities in the future, like Three Body Problem or Ancillary Justice or the Bobbyverse series or Fifth Season or The Quantum Thief, which I think all kind of ex explore kind of a future with a technical mindset uh, or cultural new mindset, which I think are interesting. So I would say that reading is amazing and people should just go to Goodreads and read books that are rated more than four and then find something they like about it. Definitely. And I think everybody, everybody in the world should read The Golden Compass because The Golden Compass is one of the best books ever I'll add it to my Goodreads list. <laughs> uh, it's a young adult book, so warning. Excuse me? Yeah, sir. It's a young adult book. So it's, it's not, and like, it, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it, I love it. You should read it. Cool. Yeah, I will, I will certainly do that. Uh, mm -hmm. Final thought now. Uh, if you had one uh, best piece of advice you had to give startup founders, what would it be? I, build the company you really want to build. And what I mean by that is, I think that I meet so many founders that they are stuck in a world where if the company succeeds, they're not going to be happy because they don't want to work at that company because they would hate working for a company that was like that if they got employed. If the company fails, they're going to be super sad because it's horrible to fail a company. Um, and instead, I would say much rather take high risk and build the company you really want to work with, work at forever. Because if you're able to create that company, it doesn't matter. Like it, it's like you're going to be either going to learn stuff you really want to learn, or you're going to be successful building the company, and they're going to be super happy because you can work at that company. And don't build someone else's company. Like don't care what your parents, what your friends, what your VCs say. Like build the company you want to build. But then be clear on communicating what that company is, so people don't get disappointed at you or angry at you. So figure that out. Build the company you want to build. Definitely agree. Thank you again, Hampus, for being on Founder Coffee. It's really great to have you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.